How useful, overhyped, or even detrimental are digital technologies in a crisis? What can be learned from experiences of crisis-driven technology use, both on an individual and organizational scale? Zoom came in to save the day when work went remote during the COVID-19 pandemic. Online shopping and food delivery became even more normalized, and even doctor's appointments went online. For many of these digital technologies and even more specialized innovations provided a kind of utopian hope for large-scale societal change. In reality, the acceleration of digital innovation across sectors and the world has disrupted business as usual and exposed systemic challenges and inequalities. This is what Cambridge scholar Michael Barrett points out in his latest research examining the possibilities and limits of digital innovation. Welcome to the Delve podcast. This podcast draws real-world insights from new management research at McGill's Desotel Faculty of Management and beyond. If you'd like to listen to past episodes of this podcast, read feature articles, and watch symposium videos, go to delve.mcgill.ca. For this episode of the Delve Podcast, I'm your host, Robin Fatten. In December of 2022, noted management scholar Michael Barrett gave the Laurent Picard Distinguished Lecture at Desotel on the subject of rethinking digital innovation and crisis. He outlined his recent research that examines digital innovation in organizations and asks what happens with that innovation in a time of crisis, including at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. Michael Barrett is currently Professor of Information Systems and Innovation Studies at Cambridge Judge Business School, where he is also the founder and academic director of Cambridge Digital Innovation. After his lecture at Desotel, Professor Barrett sat down to discuss his findings with me on the Delve podcast. Welcome to the Delve podcast, Professor Barrett. As a scholar, you're immersed in digital innovation research, organizational strategy, and institutional change related to that. You've looked at the uses of AI, 3DP, telemedicine in hospitals, mobile payment systems, clean energy, and other technologies for climate resilience. Some organizations introduce new technologies before they're perhaps equipped to do so, such as in a time of crisis. However, in an ideal situation, can organizations be fully prepared to introduce new technologies, or should they always plan for some degree of the unexpected? Well, one is never fully prepared for any eventuality such as a crisis. But you're absolutely right to say that there is what we might term a level of digital maturity of the organization, which may depend on both the resources that they have, but not just the resources, maybe the mindset change that they have as to the possibilities, the potentialities of the new technology, and, and the actual practical pilots and ways of understanding and testing the limits and possibilities of the digital innovation. So depending on the amount of work or that digital maturity, the resources, the capabilities, the readiness for change and the infrastructure to deliver the technology, an organization will be less or more prepared regardless of the eventuality. So then we have the crisis situation. So the same would apply if an organization is more prepared. They might be able to handle a crisis more easily through the use of digital assets. We see this in healthcare, for instance, and you've seen this in your research in healthcare management. Absolutely. I mean, a, a wonderful example from our research is the work we're doing in Israel, where the clinicians, even attached to the very large hospitals, again, well-resourced, do have both a readiness to, for change, but also, uh, if you like, a proclivity to handling crisis. As we know, the nation of Israel is always in a state of, of readiness for, for cr critical issues and incidents. And that actually translates into other crises, such as healthcare, where they were the first in the world, really, to develop new capabilities, both on telemedicine, 
to uh, uh, combat what they would call uh, the battle of, of the of the COVID-19 and, and also to reconfigure many parking lots, which they always have ready for in the state of war into COVID units, something which other countries have done, but they were the first to do and very rapidly. And we attribute that in part to you know the the psyche of the the nation and the the ability therefore to to reconfigure very readily in times of crisis that's an interesting and somewhat contentious example they've been used to crisis for such a long time that it's almost a way of life but they've also had the resources to harness crisis in many ways despite its obvious detriments this is a good time to define what a crisis is in relation to your most recent research where you write that a crisis can be an opportunity for the organization but not in all organizations or not in all crises maybe just to differentiate there are different types of crises there are different conditions of crisis there are crises that that seem to be slow moving the change comes but like climate change in a way that's perhaps never never quick enough and it's long lasting and then we have these very immediate crises that whether you know it is to do with a meltdown of the financial markets or otherwise which or a war requires a very different recognition of the externalities that are affecting the crisis and the change as opposed to something which is more endogenous so then different images of crisis, how we've looked at in our research, is to categorize them helpfully into uh, you know, a crisis as opportunity versus a crisis as disruption or a crisis as exposure. I think they're all images and vantage points, but they're helpful to, to make sense of, of the crisis and to, to understand the different ways in which digital technologies might respond to those crises. Uh, you know, it was Winston Churchill who said, never waste a good crisis. And indeed, that would be the crisis as opportunity. And how, you know, how digital technologies we have seen in experimentation and the rapid innovation that becomes opportunities. The, the opportunities that we see through COVID are the huge investments in, in, in the UK. It was over £140 million in a short period of time into digital health, a sector that had very little, relatively little investment as a category up to that point in time. So that's a, a very good example of crisis as opportunity. Crisis as disruption, that whole sense of that any crisis will, dis, will as it suggests, disrupt uh, work practices in, in ways that are very uh, challenge the routines and have a need for new ways of operating. Uh, and that can happen at the organization or also at the societal level. And so the way in which we've seen the digital response, we've all lived through it, has been phenomenal. We have seen how at scale digital platforms allow us to really um, engage and do activities, whether it's telemedicine, whether it's learning opportunities through Zoom, whether it's sales meetings through Zoom. So many things that we just knew was possible but didn't scale anywhere near that, but was necessary in a time of disruption and a need for continuity of services or of care if it's in a hospital setting. Of course, and I, I do, we, we do point out that we must always look at the tension and the, the critical issues that they also might produce, if you like, new risks in that, in that these platforms are becoming increasingly indispensable. The over-dependence of them can be or raise concerns for those that believe that that indeed what are the new possible surveillance what are the new data that's being collected for algorithms that may or may not be used in ways that that are supportive of the way of life and way of working that we're used to and then lastly I do find the crisis exposure really important because it just 
sheds that spotlight with a crisis on those that are vulnerable in ways that we just may have sort of seen or you know had a, a sort of blind eye towards or not an adequate attention to. And I think that's really important to realize that it exposes the invisible work becoming visible, those that are in situations where they are perhaps not in the, the best situation in society, low economic conditions, socioeconomic conditions. And, and the fact that we did see that in many studies in the COVID that there are increasing digital inequalities that have exacerbated the digital divide. And that is something which we, we argue is important as a moral imperative to us all to address. There's been a persistent utopian vision that digital innovation can solve the world's problems, but obviously so many of those problems, like poverty, homelessness, lack of access to healthcare, haven't gone away despite the world's technological leaps in the past 20 years. These socioeconomic inequalities came into sharp relief during the COVID crisis. With that in mind, could you share how the organizations that you researched, especially hospitals, used technological innovation to help them manage in crisis? You have the example of the ophthalmology unit of a major London hospital hospital, which introduced telemedicine during the COVID-19 pandemic to serve its patients, which included many older, vulnerable patients. The hospital went from the tried-and-true slit-lamp method of diagnosing eye problems in person to determining risk of eye problems through telemedicine through video chat, essentially. But even before the pandemic, you were drawn to look at this hospital and how it functions. Why was that? We were drawn to it because we always look for um, where there is opportunities for learning at extremes often. So where there are well-resourced hospitals or where there are areas where there's exposure of, of not having an adequate digital infrastructure, we can learn the issues that need to be erased. In this particular case, it is one of the leading hospitals for eye care in the world, well-resourced and uh, also uh, with a, a really an excellent infrastructure technologically, but also an ambition to be a, a really a for number one digital hospital meaning by that developer of algorithms for diagnosing eye care uh, that are at the forefront of, of the world in, in diagnosis and other areas. So we were drawn to them and they were drawn to us, to be honest. So, so there was a good marriage there. And, and what that led to was pre-COVID, uh, looking at how these algorithms might be implemented for redesigning pathways to address the big challenges of many healthcare systems, including in the UK, of long wait times, and lack of expertise, human experts to to address many, many patients, especially with a aging population, which is phenomenal, as you may know, in mo many developed countries, and even others, you, you will see in the next 10 to 15 years, doubling of people over 65. So these vulnerable populations with that comes more need for eye care. And so looking at how they were addressing it through digital was really exciting. We ended up pivoting a little bit during COVID, as many have, because all the resources and the focus went towards continuity of care and using telemedicine to support it. If you like, some of the very interesting projects had to be put on one side on the shelf a little bit. The redesign of the pathways through AI and doing pilots in that area. The focus had to be how do we keep care going? How does therefore telemedicine allow for ophthalmology to be continued? And that was our focus during COVID, uh, which was a really, really an eye-opener on, on seeing how, having talked to the senior doctors and technology specialists 
in the organization not even two months before, they had clearly said, and this is true across much of the world perhaps, that it would be five to ten years before those pilots that we had seen in December of 2019, which looked quite revolutionary at the time around telemedicine, could be possible within the you know within their hospital, which is one of the leading hospitals in the world. And then to see and witness firsthand through the research expansion of the pilots and a launch of them uh, and a scale up within three months to 10,000 video consultations was just was mind blowing to them and, and for us as well. And what we learned through that, though, was it's not that the telemedicine had changed. It remained um, the same technology but the risk landscape within which the introduction of the technology was was being introduced was was changing in a way that led to a lot more openness for certain conditions by a much larger percentage of the clinicians to provide the care and in doing so to adjust their procedures and approaches to to delivering the care that was sensitive to keep the risks and the potential harm minimized as to how they saw it before the crisis. But it, it was a surprise to all, including the clinicians, many of whom had no expectation or intention of d- delivering care through the telemedicine, because why would you if you feel that your profession largely involves a physical examination around a slit lamp with the person beside you and that that is the best way of making a judgment and a diagnosis, then that was the focus only. Why would you change? A healthcare center or hospital is a place where risk is really tangible, more tangible to the general population, especially than in other areas, since it's something we all relate to, our health, our quality of life, and the risks to it, such as harm and death. How did your research define risk in relation to new digital technologies and understanding and weighing risk? And why is it important, especially to decision makers at an organization such as a hospital, to understand that risk is socially constructed? You did both quantitative research and qualitative research to show that risk is more of an ecology, a series of relationships, rather than a more easily quantifiable measure? It's a good question, and it's a challenge in a healthcare setting. Healthcare understands um, better than many, as you say, both do no harm to patients is the is the author that a doctor takes. So frontline physicians and, and health clinicians more generally, health professionals, have an understanding of risk from that point of view and are therefore with especially with regulation and the and the consequences which can be uh, life-threatening does limit or or at least makes that decision of balance i would say of harm and benefit a delicate one there might be more of a resistance or a willingness to do no harm even if there's great benefit potentially. So that's what we might explain simply as somebody be more conservative. Now, if we say we're conservative, well, but why? It's important to unpack these words in the different contexts. In a tightly regulated uh, context like healthcare, it is important to protect the, the patient and, and the professional socialization of a doctor doing no harm is a very strong impetus for not taking risks that are seen to be risks. So, you know, our our usual way of thinking of digital, digital innovation may center on what's the value, showing the value. And indeed, that is very important. And you you show the value also by implementing it effectively. But the challenge becomes that it's the value for, for whom? if you like, is one issue. And this whole sense of the risk that you're willing to take becomes a risk 
related to the uncertainty that it provides, especially and only if it's of value to particular what we call objects at risk or humans in this case. And so it's that balance of of understanding the nature of the industry, the risk landscape, and, and the changing risk landscape, which we see very clearly in a crisis of a COVID-19, where you, you do have a new ecology emerging of the extent to which this COVID risk, which was impacting the user journey of elderly people who might be vulnerable, therefore life-threatening to come in to do a physical examination even if that is the preferred and the best way, clinically, the patient was now at risk and at harm. So it left an opening in that risk ecology for the telemedicine, same technology to be, if you like, seen as less risky and doing less harm for the patient than if you ask them to come in to the site or to the accident and emergency for a physical examination. And then, since we're talking about an organization and all the moving parts and people within it, an additional factor to the patients and their experience is the particular clinicians, nurses, and other kinds of healthcare practitioners themselves and their experience of this technology. Absolutely. And and that's really important. Some might refer to it as the subject position, the way in which particular, in this case, young pregnant ophthalmologists who were at risk were, were required by the Royal College to not be on the front line. This was challenging for for them, as was for many people in, in healthcare settings who wanted to contribute, who wanted to stay at the front line. How could they do that? They could do that by championing and developing on the telemedicine virtual platforms, which they were critical as key actors to scale the, the platform. Again, showing that risk is related to a series of relationships in the organization as well as its wider social touch points. Social construction, but in a series of relations which are ongoing dynamic and are shaping a risk scape or a landscape within which new actions with technology might be made more affordable. Is risk managed differently in an organization that has been changed by such a major crisis than in an organization that hasn't had to alter itself or its activities to a major degree due to a crisis? We're trying to get at that in the research through understanding the recalibration of the services, that journey that the hospital is in. Because they have gone through COVID, they have made adjustments, in this case, to telemedicine-based services. They have changed around that uh, what we call they've done risk work activities to enable, uh, you know, whether it's through uh, increased safety netting or relying more on uh, history practices or being careful as to designating it as a triage service. These are all ways in which they've been able to work with and scale telemedicine. Now, through that experience of the crisis, they, they've developed capabilities, if you like, and sharpened capabilities around through those risk work activities as to how to to work with risk. Now, it's it's not that, and I should emphasize this, clinicians, as we said earlier, and other uh, healthcare professionals, especially on the front line, it's part of their DNA to be handling risk. But what the crisis does, it, it seems to open up new avenues and, and develop new capabilities almost of managing risk, uh, which after the crisis, and we're following that up now as to what's retained, what is seen as 
perhaps too risky or what could be expanded upon with this new additional risk capability to, to move forward to offer perhaps care in uh, other conditions or to you know combine technologies or let's say telemedicine and AI together because one is at a different level of readiness risk-wise to deal with a more complex array and ensemble of technologies in providing care with the hope of providing more care, better care for more people because of the looming desperate crisis we have in healthcare. And that crisis has endured and expanded, but also become more of a focus for governments, policymakers, and citizens as well. A crisis like COVID-19 has a temporary time span, and so perhaps that is easier to see solutions to. But a longer-term crisis is entrenched, and its solutions more murky. Yet in your research and theories of risk and technologies, there's the sense of learning more about solutions to long-term crisis. And what you've just talked about could be applied to different areas outside of healthcare, couldn't they? I really do believe they can. But like all research, which is more qualitatively oriented, we have to be specific as to the, if you like, the boundary conditions and and the kinds of things that may be generalizable. Uh, What we often refer to as analytical generalizability as opposed to statistical generalizability, which which you would try to do in a quantitative study. But I do believe the principles, the ideas, the, the insights that we're learning around the changing risk escape and the risk ecology, the, how we consider and designate, though it is a social construction of what risk objects are and how they get translated, are very helpful regardless of the industry. We do have to account for, this is where the boundary conditions come in, for whether, okay, if it's a regulated industry, uh, so maybe similar to healthcare, but very different, it could be the pharma industry, could be the air traffic control, you name it. They're, they may share more commonalities of how we think about the journey and the concepts and how they might be valuable. But still, outside of regulated industries, I think it tells us more about, more generally, how we organize for risk, especially with digital innovation. The principles, but the context is king or queen in the sense of how we think through with the principles and the ideas, what are the insights and the, the, the learnings that we can get across multiple sectors? But I would definitely encourage uh, not being restricted to uh, a, sing- a single sector, but to sensitively appropriate the ideas and the concepts in ways that are so sensitive to the context, but are willing to be bold <laughs> and experiment and see the opportunities for insights from this work more, more widely. And really, that is also one of the hallmarks of digital innovation as we know it, that willing to be bold and willing to iterate. As Professor Barrett points out, his research on digital innovation, crisis and risk has wider implications beyond the particular sites, such as hospitals, that he and his colleagues ventured into and studied in depth. Both adoption of new technologies and understanding risk, while on the surface seem clinical and quantitative, take place within organizations that are inherently social, where the real lives of people are in constant flux and absolutely matter to the bigger picture of whether crisis can be turned into opportunity. Our guest today on the Delve podcast was Cambridge professor Michael Barrett, discussing research that he outlined in the recent Laurent Picard Distinguished Lecture at Des Hotel on the subject of rethinking digital innovation and crisis. You can find out more about this research in an article at delve.mcgill.ca. 
Thank you for listening to the Delve podcast, produced by Delve, the thought leadership platform of the Desotel Faculty of Management at McGill University. You can follow Delve McGill on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram, and subscribe to the Delve McGill podcast on your favorite podcasting app. Thanks for listening.